0: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk/events.
1: Hey, now, now I'm going to introduce Alan uh, rather fulsomely. You ready? It's a worry. I know. Uh, are we working on this? For I could do something? this. I, I,
0: yeah, I, I could do the same for you.
1: Actually, <laughs> know, this
0: is like Nina and Frederick or Ant and Deck or something like
1: that. Little yeah. donkey, little, that was a Nina yeah, and Frederick song. Yeah, like. that was okay. Frederick. okay. Alan writes in this book, Appointment in Arezzo, over the years, I've met many writers and befriended more than a few, but my friendship with Muriel Spark was of a different order. So we're here to celebrate the centenary of Muriel Spark tonight, to celebrate her books, her life, and also to celebrate this wonderful book written in celebration of her books and her life, and of the importance of real friendship. Appointment in Arezzo, a friendship with Muriel Spark, is its subheading. Alan's the founding editor of the SRB, as we sit in the LRB, the Scottish Review of Books. He's a keystone in Scottish media, has passed through the positions of Deputy Ed of the Scotsman and Managing Editor of Everything Under Scotsman Publications. He's also an acclaimed anthologist. He's been on the Booker judging panel once, and so that was the that, yeah. only year there's ever been a Scottish winner. I'm just pointing that out, <laughs> just to let you know how critically persuasive he actually is. <laughs> He's for more than three decades been a brilliant, clear force in Scottish letters in his own terms and in the finding and helping of writers right across the spectrum who are lucky in knowing his friendship. I'm one of those writers. I know Alan a little, and the little I know him has been its own steady force of kindness, critical attention and friendship in my own life and to my work. This book, I can critically say, is by far the best book I have ever read about Muriel Sparks' work and life. It is far and away, that book. I got a copy when it first came out last year, late last year in November, yeah? Yeah. I was looking forward to reading it, but what I didn't expect was quite how properly compelling and exhilarating a read it is. The kind of read where you are on the platform, literally, waiting for the tube train, and there's two minutes to the tube train, you think, oh, two minutes, I'll just get the book out. <laughs> and those two minutes actually matter. I mean, I love it. The best kind of unputdownable. Well, it's also a, a shining book about the intellectual international culture of a century. It celebrates Sparks' work with real understanding, and it celebrates the friendship they had with candour and warmth. So this is, in this book you get Spark, the major novelist, alive in all her discipline and her erudition and her originality. But you also get her in ways that you really don't expect. For instance, that she's the part owner of some racehorses. Um, That she's the woman who, when she was given a Spartan room in the New Yorker, uh, painted its walls a bright colour and then put in a bright blue uh, carpet with a turquoise divan. Saying, as as you say, uh, a why make a dull day even duller? What <laughs> people. And a woman who, when she lost her reading sight in old days, wrote to Alan to say she had she'd lost her reading sight, but we have acquired a new reading machine, which is beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Yes. She yes. also, and I love knowing this about her, was a woman that you had to, as Alan puts it in this book, you had to be on your mettle if you were determined to settle a bill, because she'd always get there first. She did, yes. Hey, welcome, Alan Taylor, who's going to tell us about Thanks very Spartan. much. Uh, hi. Um, um,
0: Uh, It's so nice of you all to be here and thank you so much for Ali and her kind words. I was thinking about um, Muriel and Ali actually on the way here because Muriel had a sort of breakthrough with um, winning a short story (laughs) competition in uh, 1952 uh, which uh, was published in The Observer. She won it against astonishing odds. Um, I think 3,000 people entered this competition and her story the seraph and the Zambezi just walked away with it and um, I first came across the name Ali Smith when we held a short story competition uh, in the sort of gilded combination of the Macallan Whiskey Company and uh, uh, Scotland Sunday Newspaper and Ali walked away with that short story competition and uh, the first judge of the competition in the early years, there was three judges um, there was the chap who ran the Macallan, a wonderful guy called Alan Shear, uh, who under a pseudonym uh, Alan Scott wrote movies like uh, Don't Look Down and stuff like that. Um, So he was running a great whiskey company, he was writing good movies, and William Boyd and Muriel Spark. But there was really only one judge of the competition, Uh, it was Muriel. And um, I remember (laughs) at the time asking her what Qualification should there be for people entering this short story competition? And she said, Oh, they should be Scottish by formation. <laughs> and I got a phone call from the Sun to say, You know, is this not racist? You know. <laughs> and I tried to explain the intricacies oh, of what God. Muriel meant by Scottish for- formation. I could hear the phone go slowly down on the Sun. <laughs> Nothing ever appeared. Um, so um, there's a connection there. Um, it's
1: an open connection because I lived in, in Cambridge when I wrote that story and sent it in. But be- because I was, and am, Scottish by formation, I could enter that competition. And Spark herself spent all that time in her life having to argue herself back to being a Scot, having left Scotland. She
0: did. And reading, uh, there's an amazing archive of Muriel's work in mm-hmm. the National Library of Scotland. She kept every scrap of paper from the 1950s onwards. Um, This was to prove where she was and what she was doing at a particular time for all sorts of reasons, um, mainly to do with correcting errors that had been made about her and her life uh, and things that people had written about her. But up until that point where she wrote this uh, short story, she had always regarded herself as a a poet. Mm. And um, so she won this competition. It was something like 250 pounds. And in the collection in the National Library of Scotland, there's a wonderful exchange of letters between Muriel and Her Majesty's Tax Inspectorate, (laughs) in which she's trying to explain to the tax inspector that she's a poet and she's not a short story writer and therefore it's iniquitous for him to be asking her to pay tax on a short story. (laughs) And back and forth it goes. It is actually a wonderful correspondence between you do not understand who I am. I am a poet. I will probably never, ever write another prose sentence in my life. I can tell you this for certain I will never write another short story. She said. Oh, box. <laughs> But I tried this earlier this year, last year, with the tax man. <laughs> it, it was terrible. The results were awful. You know, even with a Scottish tax inspector, um, it, uh, it, the, the penalties were dreadful.
1: Seriously? Still? Yes.
0: No. Yeah. Well, I, I wrote and said, "Look, have you no idea how difficult it is being a writer? The hours I work, <laughs> I need to, I need to uh, heat and uh, keep this house going seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day." And they said, "Well." I think we'll grant you four days a week. I said, no, 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 you don't understand being a writer. Every waking hour I'm writing, I need to keep the place hot. I need 24, water. 24-7. It
1: yeah, 24/7. exactly. Yeah.
0: Oh, <coughs> don't, don't do it, Ali. As, I'm I telling you, how I'm much I pay to, to these guys is unbelievable. Uh, I'm
1: never, I'm never going to be a writer. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, she, she, you, you, at one point in the book, you're talking about a, a trip you make with Muriel to the States, and you, mm. even then on the trip, she's writing poems. She's, she's got, as you say, a poem on the go.
0: In her handbag, she always had a poem on the go, um, and uh, you know she she once had her bag stolen, and uh, she complained to the authorities. It wasn't the watches and money and all the rest of the cards that was in it. It was the poem has gone. Um, uh, so uh, you know, uh, did she not
1: write a poem about that? Yeah, yes. she wrote a poem
0: about <laughs> it. Well, I mean, nothing's wasted, is it? Um, but no, that was quite. Uh, that was a a, a wonderful trip um, where she she um, had been invited to the New Yorker's seventy fifth uh, birthday mm-hmm. party, um, and uh, as a guest of honor because the New Yorker had published almost in its entirety the prime Miss Jean Brody in nineteen sixty two, and. Uh, she said, uh, she phoned me and it was like, I don't know if you've read her novel um, Memento Mori but getting a phone call from Muriel was, <laughs> if, if, if she said something like, remember you must die you know, but this was would you like to go to New York? And uh, had this ethereal quality to it and uh, the reason why she was asking me to go rather than her companion Penelope is that Penelope had a fear of flying then mm. and so we went to New York for, for, for ten days thankfully all paid for by the New Yorker. And I remember being, I remember, she, she was a great one for maxims, uh, you know, she, which she would happily pass on. She would got this from her mother. Uh, her mother would say things to her like, if you don't learn to do something, you'll never be asked to do it. Now, now, Muriel took this to heart in a way that nobody I've ever met since has taken it quite to heart. So, for example, ironing. Um, washing dishes peeling <laughs> potatoes none of these things uh, she would ever think of doing I never saw her boil an egg um, spread a piece of you know. she just didn't do any of these things and um, you know beware of men who bring you flowers uh, when in trouble go to Paris all good advice um, laughter and, but she, she decided on this trip that she discovered, and I recommend this to, to all of you, I can see there's a certain youthfulness about the audience, but you know, get yourself in a wheelchair as soon as you can, uh, because you get priority treatment, even if you don't need it. And so she was being wheeled down to the plane and this chap who was wheeling her said, this could be a great flight, you know, my boss is on board, you know, I think you'll enjoy it. And Muriel said to me, well, I don't understand why we'd enjoy this just because this wheelchair pusher's boss is on board. But there we were on the plane and I looked across and sure enough, there was Richard Branson. And I, I thought, well, and totally unfazed, Muriel said, let's wait until we're airborne and then could you pop over and ask him if he'd like to come for a drink? It was like crossing the village green,
2: yeah.
0: and he did. Oh, gracious.
2: So yeah. she she
0: had this kind of, you know, ass- assertiveness about her and kind of, you know, casualness. Like S- uh, expe- style. Style, yeah. to- style is yeah. the word, yes, yeah. and charm. Yeah.
1: and style and charm, charm is one of her favourite words. You say.
0: Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. She she liked people who were charming, and uh, I, I don't think I'm charming. I, I think she she liked me people. Somebody wrote to me today. She said, "Why? Why was she like you?"
1: Oh.
0: Uh, I thought, "Well, we were the same height. Uh, <laughs> we, we were Scottish,
1: um, you know, um,
0: and uh, you know, I was sympathetic towards her." Um, How
1: did you meet Alan? How did you meet Muriel? Spark. Well,
0: I, I, I used to, as, a, as you mentioned, Jack, uh, Jackie Alley. Jackie. Jackie.
1: Ja- Jackie Smith,
0: the, <laughs> the, home, the home secretary. <laughs> Wait, <When> she. <laughs>
1: Jackie Kay, Jackie Kay, my, <laughs> uh, friend,
0: my uh, friend. And uh, yeah. I was, I would, I had a very um, nice editor in those days, mad but nice, and he allowed me to go around the world interviewing people. Yeah. It's not like now where you, you know people go in and interview somebody for half an hour, an hour, and then yeah. it's moved on. It's a bit like movie interviewing. You could go to a place and you could spend three or four days. Uh, interviewing people, I was telling Ali earlier that I I, I once spent three days with Jackie Collins, um, which uh, you know was 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 hilarious. No, no, tell them uh,
1: about the red jumpsuit with the zip. Like, yes, you told well, me about. Like, well,
0: what happened was she was staying at the Dorchester right. Hotel in the Oliver right. Messel suite, and I had come down from, you know, uh, frozen Scotland. And, uh, you know, in those days, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't the stylish person I am now. <laughs> um, I, so I had a very, I find that hard to believe. I had this right. very nice Harris Tweed jacket with leather, you know, elbows and grey flannels and, and good brogues. And I walked into the Dorchester to meet Jackie, who I was spending three days with. And there she was in a red jumpsuit, zipped up the middle in high heels. And she took one look at me and she said, it's some kind of a joke, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, it Anyway, um, I was interviewing all these people. And my editor said to me, he was obviously paying a lot of money to go to New York and other places. And he said, isn't there you know, a Scottish writer you would like to interview? And I said, yeah. He obviously thought they'd be available on the number 26 bus route. Uh, And I said, yes, uh, the person I've always wanted to interview is Muriel Spark. Mm. And he said, oh, where is she? I said, Tuscany. (laughs) Um, And so I I, I made overtures. I I had friends of friends who helped. And we wrote to Muriel. And she loved faxes. You know, you're all too young to remember faxes. But these were wonderful things, this kind of thing would just come scrolling Mm. through. And you thought, how does that happen? You know, it it was like some kind of... Ghost was writing this stuff. Muriel loved
1: taxes. <laughs> yeah.
0: And um, she, she responded and said, "Yeah, well, that would be nice. Um, I, I, I'm happy to be interviewed. She was then 72, uh, and she'd just published a novel called "Symposium." And she said, "Come to the uh, Hotel Continentale in Arezzo uh, at six o'clock, and we can talk then." Uh, she said it's very hot. Um, but uh, we can talk then. And so I went there, and um, she and her uh, companion, great friend Penelope, in whose house she was living, in the Val de Chiana in Tuscany, uh, came to the Hotel Continentale. Still quite a nice hotel, by the way, if anybody's thinking of going to Arezzo. Uh, um, Mm. And um, she had this wonderful ability, um, if you asked her a question, to deflect it, (laughs) you know, like a politician... So you would ask her a question, she would ask you a question. So she would say to me, so what have you been doing in Florence or Arezzo, or what have you been up to? And I said I'd been trying to buy some trousers. And uh, she said, OK. She said, well, let's let's call that waiter over and see if we can find a decent tailor for you in a restaurant. So she was obviously not impressed by my trousers. And so this, this waiter came over. She said, he's dishy, isn't
1: he? <laughs>
0: dishy, what a great word. Nobody's allowed to use words like dishy anymore. And this dishy waiter came over. And she quizzed him about where to go. I went the next day, by the way. Yeah.
1: I got that. I went for trousers. Yeah. God yeah. knows
0: how that waiter afforded the trousers they were selling. <laughs> that tr- And then she said, um, "You know, uh, do you touch up your hair?" And, and I, you know, I had more hair then than I do now. But and I said, "No, no, no." I said, "There's a chap called Alfie on the, the steps of the newspaper where I worked who dealt with everybody's hair." Uh, and she said, so you don't colour it or anything like that? I said, no, no, I don't. Uh. I said, what about you? She said, no, no, I don't touch mine either. Hers was flaming red at that point. Um, so I, I, I kind of thought, this is somebody I can get on with. You know, who I, is you know, yeah. very happy to dissemble as yes. and when necessary, yeah. was mischievous and uh, liked to joke. Mm. And, uh, and then I wrote the piece um, and... Uh, Within two or three days, a, a, a lovely fax came through from Muriel to say that she'd read the interview, she'd enjoyed meeting, um, and, uh, by the way, would I and my family like to come and look after our house for a month the following year? So it was tricky. Um, I was going to go to St Andrews in a caravan. So I thought, well, why not?
1: Nice. Uh, so it's the, basically, the opening of this book is that beautiful... Uh, 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 kind of your own arrival in Italy and your own uh, being in this new country, going uh-huh. to see and to stay in Sparks and Penelope Jardin's house. Um, yeah. And you call it, uh, you say Italy has a pernicious charm. It does. And I was just, again, the, the, the notion of charm came up there, and I was just wondering about exactly that for Spark, because there she is, the most peripatetic of Scottish writers. Yes. Yeah.
0: And yet she'd come to rest in the deep countryside. Yes. She wasn't just even peripatetic, uh, Ali, she, she was a city person, yes. you know, she'd, she'd, ah, she'd, yes. everywhere yes. she'd been, had been a city, you know, somewhere she would walk out and buy clothes and stuff like this, and suddenly, mm-hmm. in her 60s, um, late 50s, here she was living in, in basically a wilderness, yes. um, and, uh, you no know, water in the house, they had no, to, there was yeah. no water, right. next to no electricity, You know, the beams were exposed, and so there was one point she was sort of lying in a fetal position where she could have fallen between two beams. Um, uh, You know, it was a completely bizarre place for her to be, especially somebody so utterly impractical.
1: Um,
0: You know, um,
1: uh,
0: I'll tell you other stories about this, but one. Not so long ago, my wife was and I were staying with Penelope there, and my wife asked Penelope, Rosemary asked Penelope, you know, at what point did you realize that when Muriel came to live with you, that she wouldn't do anything?
2: <laughs>
0: and she said, well, it was probably the first or second day.
2: <laughs> and uh,
0: Penelope, who's a sculptor, uh, had been in the garden moving rocks and, you know, timbers and dealing with workmen and stuff like this and it was a sweltering summer's day you know and so in Italy of course you close all the shutters to keep the heat out rather than have it in but at five o'clock Muriel who had been kind of working all day working in inverted commas flung open the shutters leaned out and shouted to Penelope and said when well, you've done playing in the garden Penny would you mind coming and making me a cup of tea
1: <laughs> Penny said at that point I wanted to ring her neck <laughs> <laughs> in, in the book you describe it beautifully how they lived and how they they, they had a kind of an amazingly adventurous life for yes. Muriel being in their later years driving off as you say like Thelma and Louise yes. on travels to wherever in their Alfa Romeo quite incredible um, and a Muriel having her own half of the house yes um, and, and also very much their determination to have privacy where uh, Penny would come to the come to the window and shout to someone who came towards the house friend or foe yeah uh, <laughs> yes. and the, the book is a, is a really important it's a crucial celebration of their friendship too as well oh as yeah
0: a, they're, a rare thing they they were they were extraordinarily way. kind of sympathetic. <sighs> although penny has said sometimes that you know despite all the years she knew muriel she felt she didn't know her at all and this is the mystery of a writer and artist that you know we kind of know them as people but how do they create what they're what they're creating and uh, you know muriel was a very mis- Serious in that she was an enigma. Um, uh, there was something wonderful about that. I felt, you know, I didn't really want to know how she did it. And, you know, it was just enough that she did do it. Um, but you know, she she was a, an adventurous spirit. She she liked to embrace the new. I mean, one of the things. Sorry, there was a point to that hairdressing story, by the way, um, because you know when Muriel went to the hairdressers, she didn't say to the hairdresser, oh, just part me to the left like that. You know, like, when, they, when somebody says to me, you know, what do you want to happen? I said, well, just make it look as if I've got hair. Mm-hmm. Um, Muriel said to the hairdresser, make me look different. Uh. Make me look different. And that's what I think she did when she approached an empty page. Yes. She said, I have to do something different to this page. You know, it's not going to be like the page I did before or the book I did before. I need to do something different here. And that was a, an incredibly invigorating thing to somebody like me who'd read lots of writers who, once they'd hit a stream and had success, they'd try to reproduce it. She wasn't trying to reproduce mm. it. She was trying to do something different.
1: And it was incredible. This is maybe the place to tell the audience, who may or may not know about this, uh, of the gift to us all of what she called the nevertheless principle. Yes.
0: Well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very Scottish thing, you know. um well, it was best illustrated not even by Muriel, yeah. uh, although she explains it brilliantly in a, an essay called What Images Return, when she, she wrote this um, in the North British Hotel when her father was dying and she was reflecting on what it was like to be Scottish. But uh, a very good friend of hers and a, and a good friend of mine was a, was a writer at the New Yorker called Alistair Reed. Mm. Alistair Reed and Muriel knew each other very well at the New Yorker. Muriel used to call Alistair the second worst-dressed man in New York. And she never mentioned <laughs> who the first dressed up. But um, a- 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 Alistair has a poem called Scotland. And uh, the poet comes out of the house of a day, and the sun is shining, the sky is blue. It's absolutely a wonderful day. And he meets this uh, elderly woman coming down the street who's looking, you know, she's kind of got a hat on, a scarf or whatever. And he says, the poet says to this woman, um, you know what a wonderful day to be alive! What a fantastic day to be on this planet now! And sort of the woman sort of gathers herself in, and she says, "Aye, but we'll pay for it. We'll pay for it. We'll pay for it." Um, so that is a kind of nevertheless principle. Oh so it's you know it's a lovely day today, but it's going to rain in the afternoon. And you know that's the nevertheless principle. Although Muriel enunciated it in the way of Morningside, Morningside being a poshish area in Edinburgh, uh, and they would say not nevertheless, they would say
1: nevertheless. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was on the nevertheless principle that she said she turned Catholic. Uh, She also said it was Edinburgh that bred within me the conditions of exile, Um, and Edinburgh to quote you. in Edinburgh history is a living, indelible, inescapable reality. And yet, she belonged to Edinburgh, but she escaped Edinburgh yes. and went elsewhere to escape history. I suppose I'd, I'd like really to ask you about her Scottish literary formation—what she meant, what she means by Scottish formation—but also what her Scottish formation actually is. Because, as you point out in this book, I don't think anyone said this yet about her—that though she's living through lifetimes of Hugh McDermott writing, though she's young at the points when Lewis Grassett Gibbon and the Scottish mm. scene, the Scottish Renaissance, is happening all around her, she takes her inspiration from elsewhere. Yes. Yeah? Well, uh, yes. You say this great thing, you quote her saying, the object of art is to diffuse intellectual pleasure. And then you so rightly say, this would have baffled McDermott.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. Well, also, that you know, her first principle was that it must be enjoyable. Yes. Um, that, you mm-hmm. know, the fir- when somebody picks up a book, the first thing they must get out of it is some kind of enjoyment. Pleasure. Uh, pleasure. Yeah,
1: pleasure. The unsayable word um, in the yeah, Presbyterian. I do not, yeah, well...
0: I, I, <laughs> Too right. I, I, it took me about 50 years before I had any pleasure. And I'm even now trying to define what it is. But she, you know, she she, she had a very happy childhood. Yes. Uh, she was born in 1918. Her uh, father, uh, Bertie, was an engineer. Um, he was Jewish. Her mother was uh, Anglican. Uh, they lived in uh, not a very wealthy part of Edinburgh, but a well enough part of Edinburgh. Um, she could walk right across... Uh, Brunsfield links to her school. On these links, uh, Mary Queen of Scots had uh, th- bashed a golf ball, people say. Muriel herself bashed a golf ball. And when she went to school, uh, uh, James Gillespie's uh, School for Girls, which becomes the Marcia Blaine School for Girls in the Prime Minister's Brody, Brodie, uh, suddenly, you know, she, she was in this remarkable place. Uh, it was a wonderful school. Um, it was liberal, it, 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 it was eccentric, um, it was highly intellectual, a big achieving school, but it also instilled in the girls that you can be what you want to be, but you have to want to be that. You have to make the goal and you have to go for it. And this was instilled in the girls at that age. And this was quite unusual for um, an Edinburgh Scottish school. But even more importantly, she came across a teacher called Miss Christina Kay, who became the model for Miss Jean Brodie. And Miss Christina Kay, about whom we know quite a lot, but not very much, Mm. um, was the basis really of Miss Jean Brodie. I mean, Muriel says in her autobiography curriculum, Vitae, that every girl who had her recognized the portrait of Miss Christina Kay in Miss Jean Brodie. Mm. And she was a wonderful teacher in the sense that she would divert from the... uh, the, the syllabus um, to talk about her own life, her personal life, her holidays in Italy, um, her love of um, art. It was she that said, "You know, girls, who is the greatest Italian painter of them all?" And you say, "Well, Leonardo, Michelangelo." Say, "No, you're wrong. It's Giotto." <laughs> um, and then to talk about her love of Mussolini and the fascisti of, of Italy. Mm. But Muriel herself was at that time reading enormously. Um, the Border Ballads was formative. I think Scott's mm-hmm. novels and Stevenson's novels mm-hmm. were formative. Her best friend, Frances Niven, uh, who was at school with her, lived in the house next door to the house in Howard's Place that Robert Louis Stevenson was brought up. Oh. So Muriel played in the garden that Robert Louis Stevenson played in. The
1: Garden of Verses, in fact. Yes,
0: the Garden of Verses, yes. uh, where the lamplighters still came around and extinguished the lights. And she could walk to Morningside Public Library or to the Central Library in Edinburgh. Morningside Library was for a while in the Guinness Book of Records as the busiest public library in Britain. Um, it had a very snooty uh, membership, and these snooty people would get all the reviews of the latest books and go in on the Monday morning saying, give me this book. <coughs> and Muriel took her mother's cards, her father's cards, her, son, her brother's cards, and read all these books.
1: the mm, books. And
0: then she would take, um, in particular poetry, she would take, um, you know, Milton, Wordsworth, Byron, whatever, and then she said, improve them. (laughs) Uh, She was 10. Um, And she was 10, 11. She had uh, clusters of poems published in the school magazine.
1: You were laughing. Last week I went to the uh, exhibition in the National Library of Scotland uh, where some of the archive is on display, really beautifully on display. Mm. It's a fantastic exhibition.
0: Worth going to Edinburgh for.
1: It is, actually. It's worth going just to go and see this this room, which blossoms out of itself into the life and the Mm. work of Spark. But in one case in particular, there's some of the childhood verses. And there's a verse that actually made me cry it was so good. And, and I know it was called Dust, and it was uh-huh. a simple little Macefield-like verse. And it, it had a couple of little corrections on it, and the corrections were so good that you could see at that age, whatever she was, 12 to 15 mm. or something. Yeah. That, and, and younger than that. Think, younger yeah. than that. And the set, the poem itself was just, I mean, I was uh, well, I wasn't surprised. It was because it was written by Muriel Spark. She was already going to be Muriel Spark. Uh-huh.
0: And, um, you know, by the age of 17, she said that... Um I think by that point she was decided, enough is enough of Edinburgh, but she said that um, her school friends were all going to Edinburgh University. And uh, whether her family could have afforded to pay for her to go there is moot. But at the same time, she said, well, what were they doing there? They were all writing essays on John Donne. Well, I could already do that. (laughs) I mean, there's a wonderful thing about Muriel, this kind of... um, Confidence in her own ability. I, I you know, I, I, heard her say things like this, you know, all the time. There was a wonderful occasion where we're having supper in, uh, in Tuscany and this wonderful Australian artist called Geoffrey Smart, Geoffrey with a J, he's a brilliant artist. Um, Geoffrey was an admirer of Muriel's, but he said, you know, he'd been reading Aldous Huxley and he turned to Muriel and said, you know, Muriel, wasn't, you know, Aldous Huxley a fan of yours? there's this horrible murial silence you know Pinter doesn't do anything for these kinds of things and eventually she said well why wouldn't he be?
2: <laughs> and I thought
0: well why wouldn't he be? of course she's a much better writer than Aldous Huxley God I'll bet you that Aldous Huxley's <laughs> grandchildren are in the audience or something like that <laughs>
1: Uh, but the spirit of Spark is with us. Um, what I'm going to uh, do is just uh, ask you a wee bit more about the notion of her, her as a Scottish writer and her as a, what she was when received us when I was a student,
2: which was a runner away from Scottish Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. Um,
1: When I was at University in Aberdeen, um, there was an argument in the press and it's an argument which happens whenever a, a writer leaves, you know, their home, and there's a really vibrant. But culture does it happen other, in, in other places? Yeah. So. Think of T. S. Eliot and William Carlos Williams. You think of the argument that they, that Williams had with T. S. Eliot, which actually grew a, a poetic for Carlos Williams that might not have been there yeah. otherwise. You know. Anyway, um, I'm just going to read you a, a, a tiny little bit of a, a Alan's book here. Um, typically, this frame of mind was another novelist, Robin Jenkins. Jenkins is a really prolific. A Scottish novelist, um, in an interview in 1999 in Scotland, a short-lived magazine in which he was billed as Scotland's most senior, most distinguished novelist, he said he didn't like Muriel's work, or for that matter, Iris Murdoch's, because he did not understand their characters you're the kind of people I would never meet and never want to meet. (laughs) (laughs) Muriel Sparks, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, was set in Scotland. Mind you, she was brought up in Scotland, but then she left and never wrote about Scotland again. And you find it very difficult to get any real Scots person accepting her as a Scottish writer. I know the English do. They think she's a wonderful Scottish writer on the strength of Miss Jean Brodie. But all the other novels, they're set in Venice, they're set in London. Particularly, I just don't get it. I can't understand how I, as a Scottish writer, could be content to stay in London and write about the English. never never. And I don't know if there were any really good Scottish novels ever written by anybody in those circumstances. And Alan says, and this is very interesting, Jenkins' view is symptomatic of a problem endemic in Scotland in the not-so-distant past. <laughs> There's a saying that sums it up. I kent your father. It means I know who you are. I know where you come from. How dare you get above yourself? You're no better than me. And then he ends this chapter with this great riposte. For her part, Muriel would have had the perfect riposte. Who is this Robin Jenkins?
0: <laughs> yeah, she, she would have said that. What
1: gives him the right to talk about me like that? I've never heard of him.
0: Yeah, yeah I think... <laughs> and, uh, he, he wrote a novel about Afghanistan, so I don't know what the hell he was well, going quite, on about. Know, com- I know. Completely I know. bizarre. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very odd thing about, you know, Scotland feels it must have ownership of you. You know, um, and, and nobody is allowed to be a big success and then come back and then expect to bask in that success. You know, it's a very tricky business. There's a great story I, somebody once told me about Robbie Coltrane, you know, the great actor. And um, Robbie uh, was showing some great Hollywood director around Glasgow, and he went into a kind of typical Glasgow bar mid-afternoon, and there was only one wee guy sitting, wee guys, sitting at the bar sipping a whiskey and so Robbie uh, goes to the bar and he orders a drink for himself and he orders a drink for the director and he says what would you like wee man to the guy sitting there and the wee man looks up looks at Robbie and says no I'm alright big man (laughs) (laughs) yeah you think, yeah, people shout to me in the street by there, how you doing, big man? That's Glasgow irony.
2: <laughs> um,
0: but, yeah, yeah Muriel, um, you know, she, she didn't read these people. She hadn't a clue. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm not, you know, I used to send her poems by the likes of even Norman McKay, who's a great poet. And, you know, I, I got no sense that she recognised what was going on there at all. Um, I mean, I think she laterally came to like or uh, be interested in the new female uh, Scottish writers mm. who've come up in the last 20, 25 years. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, chauvinism's not um, just a Scottish trait. Mm. You, know, you, you, think, you know, you think back to the 1950s. And what was it? The decade of the angry young men. All these sort of prosaic, okay writers. You know, Kingsley Amos, um, David Story, um, John Wayne, um, who else can I insult? Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, this was a decade of Doris Lessing and Iris Murdoch and Nadine Gordimer and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. It wasn't a decade of the angry young men. Yeah. It was a, a decade of the talented young women.
1: Yes, and, and uh, at the point at which Muriel Spark wrote her first novel, which took the realism apart. Yes. The very first thing she did was take the supposed realism of the novel uh-huh. apart in well, The Comforters. 1957.
0: 1957. And so she was 30. Where all the people
1: in a novel, can fi- you know, they find out they're in a the novel, and then they're stuck in a novel underneath a typing noise, which makes them go, go away. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and what was happening? Somebody was writing, I don't know, The Sporting Life. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know, but she, she was always of the view also, I think a lot of novelists are, that there are only so many readers out there who can understand what you're on about, yeah. and the rest are just reading. You know, there's a kind of comfort thing. It's a, you know, it's like an electric blanket. It, at some point in your life, you, you have to have one. I've come to that, by the way, in the last month or so. <laughs>
1: it's true. It's actually true. Um, even nowadays down here, you have to have one. Do you? Yes. yes. Cool. Yes. Um, okay, I'm going to ask a couple more questions, and I'm going to open it to the floor. And the questions I'm particularly going to ask are about the, the coming about of, and your own work on this book. Lies, she says, are like fleas, hopping from here to there, sucking the blood of the intellect. Yes. Um, The misinformation about her life and through her life and and her own determination to correct it. I mean, we we might call it an obsession rather than a determination to to keep it correct. Why is truth so important to this fictionalist?
0: Well, that's a very good question, actually, Um, because I think... She was off a generation where there was a very clear line between the two. And this line has become blurred now. You know, I I keep hearing writers saying, oh, it doesn't really matter so much that there's non-fiction and fiction and that, you know, what is the difference between a short story and and, and, an actual factual piece of writing? Um, So I think she respected truth and and realised, you know, um, the dangers of untruth or fudging of truth. And she would certainly have had fun, now, with this age that we're living in, in fake news, um, where, you know, now everybody does whatever they can to say, well, it's not necessarily that true. And it's maybe that's true, whatever. It mattered to her. Facts did matter to her because she knew what, the, what would happen when you begin to tell lies.
1: In in her usual prescient way, she's already talking about fake news in 1988 in a Far Cry from Uh Kensington, when someone actually does fake a newspaper Uh to scare someone into, you know, into a kind of blackmail position. And
0: she had herself been involved in fake news production during the Second World War. Yes. Sending, you know, fake stories into Nazi Germany to get the German population to revolt against Hitler. This is a very kind of double think way of doing things. But, From a personal point of view, um, people began to write about her and to say things about her that were completely wrong. Um, And they were just capitalising on who she was and her fame. And it's one of the reasons why she kept every scrap of paper from the 1950s onward. (laughs) Uh, And uh, one of these people was um, her former lover, uh, Derek Stanford. Who, in a far cry from Kensington, she calls Hector Bartlett, um, the pisseur de copie, the, the urinator of really bad journalist prose. Well, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, that's a great revenge novel, by the way. Mm. Um, I, I, and, it's you know, tremendous novel. And, um, tremendous novel, you know, somebody, I, I, one of the things I, that Muriel and I shared is a belief in revenge. Mm. Um, <laughs> that, 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 you know, get them together. Yes. Um, but, uh, there were so many instances where people wrote wrong things about her. And she would write back to people and say, look, you've written about this and said I had dinner with such and such and such. That is not the case. Mm-hmm. I did not have dinner with the such and such and such because I was not in that country at that time, whatever. And the people would write back. These are respected biographers. And all, they would say things like, what does it matter? What does it matter? She said, well, it does matter. If you've written a fact, get the fact right. And uh, this had terrible repercussions later on in her life because her son then uh, decided to investigate um, his Jewish heritage and said that he'd been doing some research into it and that he'd proven categorically that Muriel was wholly Jewish. Well, she wasn't wholly Jewish. She was half-Jewish at best. Her father was a Jew. Her mother wasn't a Jew. And when she wrote back to her son to say, look, I'm very pleased that you're interested in your heritage and you're doing all this research, but you you need to know the facts. And if you're going to write about these things, respect the facts. She said then, but by the way, I don't care. I'm not really that interested in my past. I'm interested in what I'm doing tomorrow. Mm. He didn't pay attention to that. He didn't understand the sensitivities and she verbally electrocuted him.
1: She really did. My yeah. goodness, when you quote the letter that she, she writes to him, um, I'm trying to find it now. Yeah. Here we go. Um, she writes back to him, there's no use writing to me with all that pompous bureaucratic religiosity as if you were a John Knox in drag.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that John Knox in drags inspires, oh, isn't it? Yeah. isn't
1: that brilliant? I mean, but how do you, I mean, you, there you are facing, you know, there, here, here is your friend, Spark, mm. and you are friends. And... Um, Reading this book, the question it, it continually kind of comes to the surface is how do we get to, how do you get to the truth of a life? And I felt all the time in the book, the pressure on you, I'm guessing from yourself or uh-huh. from some uncorrupted source rather than from anyone else, never mind the, the ghost of Spark who I've no doubt exists but would not pressurise you in that way. I don't think she'd no. be, she'd think, find that most impolite. Um, the, the, uh, the pressure on you to protect and actually the responsibility, the crucial importance to protect the truths of the life the specifics of the life. It seems to me you do the ultimate respect. It's not partisan. Uh, It's one of the understandings of true friendship, the recognition of needs. ah, Yeah,
0: Yeah. uh, you know, I loved her. And, um, you know, I I had great sort of admiration for her and I felt very loyal to her. But I also realised how difficult it is to uh, uh, retrieve a myth or a mistake or an error or a misfact. I mean, it really is extraordinarily difficult that once something is out there, it's very difficult to pull it back. I mean, some years ago, a friend of mine, uh, a keeper at the National Galleries of Scotland, uh, was, wrote, a, wrote a piece in a respected art magazine saying that the Skating Minister, which is the Scotland's greatest portrait painting by Henry Rayburn, yeah. hadn't been painted by Henry Rayburn, but had been painted by a French artist who nobody ever had ever heard of. And there were many coincidental Facts about this, and I looked at it, and I and this went worldwide. This was the this was the gallery's most famous painting. It was like it was like saying that you know, the Mona Lisa had been painted by Jack (laughs) Vetriano. And um, oh God, he'll be here too.
1: Anyway, you know, I, you know I, I looked at this case, and I thought, this is crazy. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just imagining the Mona Lisa painting my jacket down in my head. <laughs> but it was crazy.
0: I, you know, I could see it was crazy, you know. but And I made a TV programme about it. I wrote pieces about it and all this. But very respected people kept saying this was the case. And out there, people still believe it. The National Galleries actually... Had, uh, under their attribution of their most famous painting, saying it may not have been painted by them, and I would say to the director, "You're wrong. It was painted by him." It's like saying Burns didn't write "To a Mouse." And can you understand how serious it is to say that somebody didn't do that? Yeah. Oh well, it gets people talking. That's what they say. You know, drives you nuts. You want, you know, I would hang people for that kind of. Sc- <laughs> but so Muriel was in that same situation. So if if. If something was out there, if somebody said, for example, um, she had abandoned her son. Well, you know, people still tell me that she abandoned her son. It's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. But it's extremely difficult to retrieve it.
1: Talking of getting people talking, who'd like to ask anything you like?
0: Yes, uh, anything. Hello.
1: Um you haven't talked about her Catholicism at all, uh-huh. and uh, it's something that interests me a lot. And I wondered if you could shed an, any light on her conversion and um, what it did to her relationships at the time. Um, and, I, and I have a kind of um, anti-question to that as well, which is the very notion of Scottish Catholicism, which is one of the neverthelesses, as she said, I converted, you know, it's on, on this the principle, nevertheless that, principle that I converted from uh, a no, kind of non-active Judaism, half Judaism, to Catholicism.
0: Yeah. yeah, and she said that she tried um, Angla- Anglicism mm-hmm. and th- thought there wasn't anything there. <laughs> um, I, I, and I think she just found, you know, it was a bit like it was a bit like buying a house. You know, uh, there are certain things you like about it, but there will be certain things you don't like about it. But you have to compromise. And so I think she found enough things to like in Catholicism that suited her. That, that you know, um, she liked the sort of, the, 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 the bigger idea of a relationship. She liked the idea of intercession, that, you know, you have to go through somebody to get to God. You know, as a sort of um, um, lapsed pres- Presbyterian, if I want to speak to God, I can do that immediately, directly. You know, I mean, I don't even have to phone him. I said... <laughs> Whereas actually, um, if you're a Catholic, you, have, you go through a, a conduit. Um, and I think Muriel saw in that sort of relationship uh, something similar to the act of writing. That uh, there was some kind of passage that you were going through. So that if you watch her, uh, if you look at her manuscripts, there's a feeling that somebody is dictating this. And it might not be the author. The other thing was she, she was a great sampler of religions. Um, that Miss Jean Brodie, uh, you might recall in the Prime Miss Jean Brodie, every Sunday goes to a different church and a different thing. And I think most people would benefit from that um, if they went to different churches uh, and, and felt that some things were happening. So she wasn't, um, she was what I would call a pick-and-mix Catholic. Mm. Um, but, you know, I could name things she would definitely be against. Uh, and she thought some aspects of the Catholic Church were totally farcical, and she brilliantly sends it up in the Abbess of Crewe. Yeah. Um, satire being the best thing you can do to these things. But she had lots of funny stories. I mean, she, she, she used to give her uh, designer... Castaway dresses to the local nuns who wore them under their habits. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, her dogs would come rushing out. These were big, mastiff dogs. And they would come rushing out five o'clock of an evening in Tuscany, smell Muriel underneath these, and, and, and sort of maul these nuns <laughs> to death. <laughs> uh, 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 the other thing is that you, she, she, um, she had an unusual thing, maybe you, you do this, Ali, uh, that when you'd never get stuck with a novel, but when Muriel got stuck with a novel, she would check into a hospital. Uh, no, Most people, well, first of all, you can get into a hospital nowadays. Uh, uh, you'd be on a trolley. <laughs> but uh, she would go to the Salvatore Mundi Hospital in Rome and check in. And that was run by nuns. Uh, but the nuns didn't like anybody who was ill. Uh, so she could work there undisturbed. And I used to say, what kind of people went? you know, we're in the hospital. She said, well, people like the Pope. I said, well, what was he getting? What was he? She said, oh, there's nothing wrong with him. She, she might have been getting some plastic surgery or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> but yeah, she would go to... Um, that doesn't really answer your question, but I... It's uh, a good idea. People could go into a hospital. There's somebody way at the back. Oh,
1: and, and Ms. one here, and then we'll, we'll come in a minute.
0: Is it true? John, he still told me a story that when you when she was um, she was made the editor of the Poetry Review, and I think it was the chairman started sending her letters with checks in it. No, and she got hundreds. You know, there were uh, up to that period it was a bit of a vanity press. To Poetry uh-huh. Review, is it true that? Well, you know, Graham Greene used to send her checks oh, uh, uh, regularly, um, and then because um, he knew she was hard up, and. Um, but uh, he would also send her cases of wine. T- yeah. to, She said to take the chill off cold charity. But um, uh, no, I you know I don't think um, the, the, the the story of the Poetry Review and the Poetry Society is kind of well known that she tried to bring it into the 20th century and she faced lots of opposition from cravat wearing Sunday poets and. Um,
1: she came out of the madness of the Second World War and working in intelligence in the Second World War into what she said was even more mad. Yeah. The London of the Poetry Review. She said she really did experience them. I mean, you can see it, you can read it, in, particularly in Loitering with Intent. Yeah. Uh, and where she really uh, lambasts those years brilliantly, funnily, and, and uh, joyfully, actually. Well,
0: well, um, she said, you know, one of the, the people who was, uh, her fiercest enemies here was Mary Stopes. And she said she always thought it would have been a good idea if Mary Stopes' his mother had invented birth control.
1: Some of the correspondence between Mary Stopes and Spark is, is on show in the National yeah. Library of Scotland right now, and it is really, there is still smoke coming off the edges of it. it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: But also on show, interestingly, in, in, to, to take the notion of Catholicism uh, in, in the National Library of Scotland uh, exhibition, is a letter from George Mackay Brown, um, the Orkney mm, a, a writer who uh, converted yes. in his forties to Catholicism. Um, and Mackay Brown has written to her in 1992 to say he has finally written, read a book of hers, Curriculum Vita, and that he's in hospital and that <laughs> it is like having drunk a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and that he has sent out one of his friends to buy all the spark that they can get. And then at the bottom of the letter it says, P.S. I have now read Memento Mori, The Prime of Mr. G. Brodie, and he lists about six of the novels and says, and they are all my favourite books. Thank you for <laughs> writing them.
0: Yeah. Hallelujah. Good for George.
1: Yeah.
0: There's somebody at the back, yeah.
2: Hello. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the immediacy of her fiction and the shortness of her novels and how that was one of the things that made her able to react quite quickly to things and, and whether you feel that she was such a... Singular talent that like she just got a pass to do that, or whether it would be better to have many more shorter, more
1: immediate novels
0: now? No, many more shorter or immediate novels now, without, without a doubt, obviously. Well, they'd be called <laughs> novellas now. They? Hmm? Sorry, what
1: was that last?
2: They'd be called novellas. They'd now. be called
0: novellas now, yeah. I suppose they would. Well, uh, the thing was that you know uh, her, her novels just stated over quite a period of time. You know, she did a lot of research and thinking. Um, and then she waited for the moment where, you know, the, the mouse was sort of so soporific that the cat could leap on them and that would be it. Um, so she did a lot of research, and then when she started to write, it was a very intense period. Uh, she wrote The Prime Mystery Miss Brodie in six weeks. Uh, was the, the driver's seat in seven or eight weeks. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for her to do these kind of things and to have that kind of control with hardly any crossings out or afterthoughts or, or, or whatever. I think it just suited her, um, that length. Um, she often said that she felt that she was short-changing readers and that maybe she should have written War and Peace. But she, she didn't have it in her, although she did now and then, as I said earlier, when she was trying to be doing something different, she would write a bigger novel, as if to say, I'll try a bigger novel. And these are novels that need to be more explored, you know, Territorial Rights, um, The Takeover, um, Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum Gate. Gate. Yeah. These, are, these are very, very interesting novels, but they seem very unsparkian. Yes. You know, in a way, her surname kind of s- suited the novels. It was like a spark, and it, like, it would ignite, you know. And you know, when she started... You knew she would finish a novel. You know, it was uh, she, she would get a title. She used to. I don't know about you, Ali, but I mean, her her working titles were always terrible. But then she would happen upon, you know, a, a, just a common phrase, mm-hmm. and and that common phrase seemed to sum up the entire novel. You know, not to disturb the driver's seat, loitering with intent. Um, they they have a sort of ring about them.
1: Yes. You know, like the very very last novel, which never got written. After The Finishing School, imagine in any case, being Muriel Spark, dying in Holy Week, having left as her last novel, a novel called The Finishing School. Um, the novel that she, she, you say in your book that she got lonely without writing a novel. Yes. She, wrote, she said, I'm lonely without having a novel on the desk, so I have begun thinking about yes. a last novel, uh-huh. uh, another, another last novel. And she was going to call it Destiny by dying, she slipped destiny. It's like she's... Uh, yeah, she, she did
0: that, yeah. She, yeah. The novel the novel she had uh, written when I first met her was called Symposium. Hmm. It was her uh, 19th novel, you know, beauty, with all the, all the kind of yeah. um, echoes of Plato, etc. But uh, uh, it was fantastic because in that first meeting, she said to me, um, you know, I said that I had this character called Magnus who is allowed out of... Um, a mental institution, or what Muriel called a loony bin. But you're not allowed to say that now. But he was allowed out of this loony bin um, at weekends to uh, tell the family how to run their affairs. So he would come out of this loony bin, they'd all have Sunday dinner, and they would ask him questions. And he said, well, I think you should do this, and I should do that. And she said, so what do you think of Magnus? And I said, well, it seems to me pretty implausible, you know, that you have a madman comes out of the loony bin at weekends and the family are very happy to listen to what he says to whatever. She said, not in St. Andrews it's not. <laughs> and actually if you know St Andrews, <laughs> it's absolutely the case. It's the sort of place where you know mentally incapacitated people are let out at weekends to have lunch with people.
1: <laughs> one last question please. Yes there's one at the corner <clears> there. <throat>
2: I'm, I'm wondering how well-read she is today uh, and what do you think she has to offer to novelists like yourself today as yeah. a model.
1: Okay, I'm going to read you something that she said when Alan asked her what she thought her legacy was. I have realised myself. I believe I have liberated the novel in many ways, showing how anything whatsoever can be narrated, any experience set down, including sheer damn cheek. I think I've opened doors and window in the mind and challenged fears, especially the most inhibiting fears about what a novel should be. That's her That's her legacy to me. Uh, Spark allowed, at a time when realism was supposed to be the mode, any mode to happen, particularly a mode which was about the truth, which was that if you were a character in a novel, you were a character in a novel. The very, what should we say, uh, Resonance of that, which goes you know, kind of beyond the novel into the world, so that we are all characters in whatever fiction mm. we are being fed, or whatever fiction we are being asked to live by, whatever state we're in. Spark was also very well aware of, and that's why she could write so politically, so uh, uh, piercingly um, about Watergate, or about the stock exchange crashes, or about the shift in politics between Labour and Tory. If you look at the Girls of Slender Means, it's based on the day in which all the establishments come down, the the, the Labour election. You almost don't notice that in that. But there's always something utterly current and cyclic, which is never going to go away, actually, in the ways in which we live our lives, regardless of modernity, because of the metaphysic. She She gives all of those things to us. And the thing she really gives is the gift of form, look to form. She says, get form right, and then you understand all the forms we're being asked to live and how to live or how to change those forms.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when I uh, got her to come uh, to the Edinburgh Book Festival um, in uh, 2004 when she was 86, so she hadn't really appeared in public I- in Edinburgh for many a long time. Um, she stayed, uh, I got, she didn't want to be in Edinburgh. Uh, to begin with. She wanted to stay outside of Edinburgh and then come in like a, a, an encamped army before they attack. <laughs> and uh, I, I recommended she stay in a place called Melrose, which is about an hour from Edinburgh, in and, and a hotel called Burt's Hotel. And so she stayed there with Penelope and um, I went down to spend the night with them and to discuss what we would do at the book festival. Well, the first thing she said to me was, um, you know, I found a book I've been looking for all my life. And I said, oh, uh, what is it? So tell me what it is so I could put it in a newspaper and this will garner sales for, uh, you know, a a young writer, whatever. And uh, my aunt, who was called Elizabeth Taylor, had this little bookshop in Melrose. And uh, Muriel had gone there and bought this book. And she said, well, the author's called The Reader's Digest. (laughs) And uh, the book is called How to Do Absolutely Everything. Um, Change a tire, um, uh, <laughs> wire a plug, uh, get yourself out of quicksand. She said, "It's kind of book. A, if I'd had that uh, years and years before as a novelist, that would have been a big help." <laughs> um, because she couldn't do any of these things herself, but she needed to know how to do them. But the idea of being for her was, well, you know, what what she teaches young writers now or any writers now is that you have to understand what your role is as a writer, what what your position in this process is. So when we got to the book festival, and she very reluctantly read from the Primate Mystery in she didn't really want to read from that. She wanted to read something new she was writing. Mm-hmm. And I said, No, 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 you know, the mm-hmm. public want you to do this. Anyway, once she'd done that, a young woman, among the many people who were asking a question, said that had she ever been in a situation where when she was writing a novel, one of the minor characters had sort of grown in the telling and taken over the novel. And Muriel looked very puzzled. And then she finally said, how would that happen? And she said, I've heard that there are some novelists with whom that ha- happens. She said, but there's only one person writing this novel. And it's me. It's not a character. It's not somebody else. And so once you understand that relationship and then the last thing any young writer needs to do is read Muriel Spark because then you'll understand how a sentence sings and rhythms and how grammar works and all the rest of it you don't need to go to creative writing bloody classes just read these books and you'll learn how to
1: write right right Uh, I'll quote Alan on his friend he says in the book whenever I want to hear her speak I open a page at random Of any of her novels, and there she is, loud and clear, note perfect. This book, Appointment in Arezzo, out just three months ago, has already gone into several reprints. Um, Come up, and Alan will sign yours for you if you're buying it, Um, and also have a look at these incredibly handsome, New edition.
0: nine ninety nine.
1: Which they are—they're such—they're really, really beautiful books to hold in the hand. Um, And uh, slowly, the whole—how long is the whole? Twenty-two. It's going to be twenty-two in in this year. Remember, you're writing an introduction. I am. uh, I'm writing—I'm writing writing an introduction for for a deadline at the end of this month that I haven't started thinking about yet. And and, uh, never mind. Let's quickly move on and thank the man. (laughs) (laughs) Who's—it's
0: good to make it public, isn't it?
1: (laughs) I'm doing the abyss of crew. Uh, which, uh, uh, again, is is an utter poetic uh, political delight to come anywhere near that book. Um, Please thank the man whose spirit matches up to that, of Muriel Sparks' own Alan Taylor.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.